podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And today we have for you our very Merry Christmas Eve special. Woo! Woo! So for those of you that have been with us since last year, the OGs, <laughs> you will recognise this format. Emily, do you want to explain what we're going to do? Sure. So like we did last year, we've picked out four topics well six actually technically yeah four book things and two other things we're going to run through our favorites of the year basically it's going to be long we've got lots of quotes and then at the end we are going to give each other our christmas presents because we're cute like that (laughs) um i would like to preface this by saying that there may be spoilers in this episode from me okay so if any of the books that i mention you do not want spoilers then take that responsibility upon yourself sure (laughs) Shall we just dive in then? Yeah, sure. So the first category is favourite setting. Yes. Do you want to share the setting you were most infatuated with? Sure. So I'm not going to lie to you guys. My first choice for this category was Paranese by Susanna Clarke. I don't currently have it (laughs) because my dad borrowed it because he thought it sounded good. (laughs) So I did do a whole episode on it in season two. So you can hear about that very incredible and very bizarre setting there. It is a book all about setting. But because I don't have it and I can't find like a big long passage online, I picked another book to discuss. And this one I haven't actually done a podcast episode on yet, but I will be. And it is The Ten Thousand Doors of January by Alex E. Harrow. So because I'm going to do an episode on it, I'm not going to describe it too much today. But essentially, it's a story where you can step into different worlds through different doors. Hmm. Um, So it's about doors. It's about like words and stories. It's about love in lots of different forms. Oh my god, do you like The Star of the Sea? Yeah, my my next note is literally, if it wasn't clear, I picked up because it sounds like The Star of the Sea... (laughs) And I was not disappointed. It's a very different story to The Starless Sea. They both actually came out the same year, 2019. So it's not like either of them copied each other. Mm. But if you're looking for something to like fill the Starless Sea-shaped hole in your heart, then this is a good book. So yeah, I'm going to like describe the plot when I do an actual episode on it. But today I'm just going to read out a passage from a book within this book. I'm not going to say who the narrator is because you don't know it at this point. Uh, you don't need to know who the person who is mentioned in it is, is either. It's fine. I'm just going to like regale you with a very wonderful tale of these different worlds that you can reach through the enchanted doors. Sweet. <laughs> it's so pretty as well. It is very pretty. I like how it looks a wee bit like the Ophelia Girls cover. Yeah. All the flowers and stuff. It's very nice. All of my quotes are so long, by the way. I would apologise, but I'm not actually that sorry. So... <laughs> No one, no one wants you to apologise. We love a long <laughs> quote. Go for it. So this is chapter three in the book within this book. And the title of this chapter is Much on Doors, Worlds and Words. The little subtitle is Other Worlds and the Flexibility of Natural Laws, The City of Nin, A Familiar Door Seen from the Other Side, A Ghost at Sea. Ooh, <clears throat> a ghost at sea. It is a heartless thing, but it is at this juncture in our narrative that we must abandon Miss Adelaide Larson entirely. We leave her just as she sails the quay into a foreign ocean, 
with the salted wind blowing the pine sap out of her hair and filling her heart with glowing certainty. We do not abandon her without good reason. The time has come when we ought to discuss more directly the nature of doors themselves. I must first assure you I did not delay this introduction out of any sly sense of theatre, but simply because I hope by now that I have gained your trust. I hope, simply, that you will believe me. Let us begin with the first conceit of this work. Doors are portals between one world and another, which exist only in places of particular and indefinable resonance. By indefinable resonance, I refer to the space between worlds, that vast blackness waiting on the threshold of every door, which is hideously dangerous to pass through. It is as though the borders of oneself grow dissolute with nothing pressing against them, and your very essence threatens to spill away into the void. Literature and myth are rife with tales of those who have entered the void and failed to emerge on the other side. Um, there is a footnote there, but I'm just going to skip it because it doesn't matter too much. <laughs> it seems therefore likely that doors themselves were originally constructed in places where this blackness is at its thinnest and least deadly. Convergence points, natural crossroads. And what is the nature of these other worlds? As we have discovered in previous chapters, they are infinitely varied and ever-changing, and often fail to comply with the conventions of our present world which we are arrogant enough to call the physical laws of the universe. There are places where men and women are winged and red-skinned, and places where there is no such thing as man and woman, but only persons, somewhere in between. There are worlds where the continents are carried on the backs of vast turtles swimming through freshwater oceans, where snakes speak riddles, where the lines between the dead and living are blurred to insignificance. I have seen villages where fire itself had been tamed, and followed at men's heels like an obedient hound, in cities with glass spires so high they gathered clouds around their spiral points. If you are wondering why other worlds seem so brimful of magic compared to your own dreary earth, consider how magical this world seems from another perspective. To a world of sea people, your ability to breathe air is stunning. To a world of spear throwers, your machines or demons harnessed to work tirelessly in your service. To a world of glaciers and clouds, summer itself is a miracle. My second supposition is this, that doors generate a variable but significant degree of leakage between worlds. But what sorts of things leak through and what is their fate? Men and women, of course, bringing with them the particular talents and arts of their home worlds. Some of them have come to unfortunate ends, I believe. Locked in madhouses, burned at stakes, beheaded, banished, etc., but others seem to have employed their uncanny powers or arcane knowledges more profitably. They have gained power, amassed wealth, shaped the fates of peoples and worlds. They have, in short, brought change. Objects too have trickled through the doors between worlds, blown by strange winds, drifting on white frosted waves, carried and discarded by careless travellers, even stolen sometimes. Some of them have been lost or ignored or forgotten, Books written in foreign tongues, clothes in strange fashions, devices with no use beyond their home worlds. But some of them have left stories in their wakes. Stories of magic lamps and enchanted mirrors, golden fleeces and fountains of youth, dragon skill armour and moon street broomsticks. I have spent most of my life documenting these worlds and their riches, following the ghost trails they leave behind them in novels and poems, memoirs and treaties, old wives' tales and songs sung in a hundred languages. 
and yet I do not feel I have come close to discovering them all, or even a meaningful fraction of them. It seems to me now very likely that such a task is impossible, although in my earlier years I harboured great ambitions in that direction. I once confessed this to a very wise woman I met in another world, a lovely world full of trees so vast one could imagine whole planets nestling in their branches, somewhere off the coast of Finland in the winter of 1902. She was an imposing woman of 50 or so, with the kind of ferocious intelligence that burns bright even through language barriers and several flasks of wine. I told her I intended to find every door to every world that ever existed. She laughed and said, there are 10,000 of them, full. I later learned that her people had no number higher than 10,000, and claiming there were 10,000 of a thing meant there was no purpose in counting them because they were infinite. I now believe her accounting of the number of worlds in the universe was perfectly correct, and my aspirations were the dreams of a young and desperate man. But we need not concern ourselves with all those 10,000 worlds here. We are interested only in the world that Adelaide Larson sailed into in 1893. It is not, perhaps, the most fantastical or beautiful of all possible worlds, but it is the one I long to see above every other. It is the world I have spent nearly two decades searching for. Authors introducing new characters often describe their features and dress first. When introducing a world, it seems polite to begin with its geography. It's a world of vast oceans and numberless tiny islands. An atlas would look strangely unbalanced to your eye, as if some ignorant artist had made a mistake and painted too much of it blue. Adelaide Larson happened to sail into the near centre of this world. The sea beneath her boat had possessed many names over the centuries, as seas often do but was at that time most often called the Amarico. It is also customary to supply a name when introducing a new character, but the name of a world is a more elusive creature than you might suspect. Consider how many times your own Earth has been assigned, how many different languages, Erd, Midgard, Telus, Ard, Uwa, and how absurd it would be for a foreign scholar to arrive and give the entire planet a single title. Worlds are too complex, too beautifully fractured to be named, but for the sake of convenience we may loosely translate one of this world's names, the written. If this seems an odd name for a world, understand that in the written, words themselves have power. I do not mean they have power in the sense that they might stir men's hearts or tell stories or declare truths, for those are the powers words have in every world. I mean that words in that world can sometimes rise from their ink and cotton cradles and reshape the nature of reality. Sentences may alter the weather and poems might tear down walls. Stories may change the world. Now, not every written word holds such power, what chaos that would be, but only certain words written by certain people who combine an innate talent with many years of careful study and even then the results are not the sort of fairy godmotherish magic you might be imagining. Even a very great word worker could not casually scrawl a sentence about flying carriages and expect one to come winging across the horizon, or write the dead back to life, or otherwise subvert the very underpinnings of the world as they are. But she might labour for many weeks to craft a story that would increase the likelihood of rain on a particular Sunday, or perhaps she could compose a stanza that would hold her city's walls fractionally more firm against invasion, or guide a single reckless ship away from unseen reefs. There are half-forgotten stories, too faint and unbelievable even to be called legends, or greater magics, 
of writers who turned back tides and parted seas, who levelled cities or called dragons down from the skies, but these tales are too unlikely to be taken seriously. Word magic comes at a cost, you see, as power always does. Words draw their vitality from their writers, and thus the strength of a word is limited by the strength of its human vessel. Acts of word magic leave their workers ill and drained, and the more ambitious the working, the more it defies the warp and weft of the world as it is, the higher the toll. Most everyday sorts of word workers lack the force of will to risk more than an occasional nosebleed in a day spent in bed, but more gifted persons must spend years in careful study and training, learning restraint and balance, lest they drain away their very lives. The people who have this talent are called different things on different islands, but most of us concur that they are born with a particular something that no degree of study can emulate. The precise nature of that something is a contentious subject among the scholars and priests. Some have claimed that it is related to their certainty of self or their scope of imagination, or perhaps simply the interactability of their will, for they are known to be obstreperous people. Again, there's another footnote. I'm just going to skip it. There is also great disagreement on what ought to be done with such people and how best to limit the chaos they naturally cause. There are islands where certain faiths preach that writers are the conduits of their God's will and ought to be treated as blessed saints. There is a series of townships in the south that have proclaimed that their writers must live separately from unlettered folk, lest they infect them with their unruly imaginations. Such extremes are rare, however, most cities find some functional yet respectable role for their writers and simply carry on. This was the way of things on the islands surrounding the Amarico Sea. Talented writers were more often employed by universities and expected to devote themselves to the civic good and granted the surname word worker. There are, as my old acquaintance would say, 10,000 other differences between that world and yours. Many of them are too insignificant to merit documentation. I could describe the way the smells of brine and sun have permeated every stone of every street, or the way the tide callers stand at their watchtowers and cry out the hour for their cities. I could tell you of the many shaped ships that crisscross the seas with careful writing stitched on their sails praying for good fortune and fair winds. I could tell you of the squid ink tattoos that adorn the hands of every husband and wife, and of the lesser word workers who prick words into flesh. But such an anthropological documenting of facts and practices will tell you little, in the end, about the nature of a world. I will tell you instead about one particular island in one particular city, and one particular boy who would not have been remarkable at all were it not for the day he stumbled through a door and into the burnt orange fields of another world. Of course your favourite setting is a place called The Written. I know! Oh, I just love it. Like, I love the fact that there's all the different worlds anyway, mm. but, like, The Written... Oh, it's so good! That, yeah, The so Written good. World is a pretty great world name. Yeah. And, yeah, I just love the idea that all these other worlds are within reach. You just have to, like, find the door. Because that's also very Starless Sea as well. And I also love the idea of our world not being boring. Like, the fact that our world is exciting to someone else, which I think is a nice detail that's often missed in fantasy or magical realism. Like, a lot of them sort of say, like, the real world's awful. Like, you want to go to another world. Pits, like, the mundane against the fantasy. Exactly. But, like, this obviously questions that idea 
and yeah I just love the world where words are really important so yeah that was a little look at the 10,000 doors of January I don't have much more to say because like I said I'm going to do mm. a full episode on it and yeah I can't wait to talk about it more because it's such a sweet book I really loved it <laughs> I love the idea that like when you do word magic it like takes a physical toll on you because I feel like that's very like writer relatable oh yeah definitely there's so much like again I will speak about it in the episode but there's so much stuff about writing where she's obviously pushed it to an extreme but it's like yeah no that is actually <laughs> what it feels like I love that so yeah that was my favorite setting what was your favorite setting So my favourite setting, this was a hard one for me as well, because my, probably my real favourite setting of the year was The Marsh and Where the Crawdads Sing by Mm. Delia Owens. But when I did my episode on that in season two, I feel like I read out the most beautiful paragraph Mm -hmm. about that setting and really talked about it a lot. Yeah. So I didn't just want to repeat myself. So since I wasn't going to pick that, I've opted to share another favourite setting that I didn't talk about before, which is the Lily Playhouse Theatre in City of Girls by Mm. Elizabeth Gilbert. I did just talk about this book last episode at length, (laughs) and I do not care, because you're going to hear more. This book, as I explained in our finale of season three, is a 1940s story about a young woman called Vivian who's sent off to New York to stay with her wayward auntie after she drops out of college. Vivian's Aunt Peg runs the Lily Playhouse, which is a falling down old theatre, and it is a very wonderful setting for all of Vivian's adventures. So I'm going to read the passage where Vivian first enters the Lily. Okay. It wasn't a long ride from Grand Central to the Lily Playhouse. We just cut straight across town. But our taxi took us through the heart of Manhattan and that's always the best way for a newcomer to feel the muscle of New York. I was all a tingle to be in the city and I wanted to look at everything at once. But then I remembered my manners and tried for a spell to make conversation with Olive. Olive, however, wasn't the sort of person who seemed to feel that the air needed to be constantly filled up with words and her peculiar answers only brought me more questions. Questions that I sensed she would be unwilling to further discuss. How long have you worked for my aunt? I asked her since Moses was in nappies. I pondered that for a bit. And what are your duties at the theatre? To catch things that are falling through midair right before they hit the ground and shatter. We drove on for a while in silence, and I let that sink in. I tried one more time. What sort of show is playing at the theatre tonight? It's a musical. It's called Life with Mother. Oh, I've heard of it. No, you haven't. You're thinking of Life with Father. That was a play on Broadway last year. Ours is called Life with Mother, and ours is a musical. I wondered, is that legal? Can you just take the title of a major Broadway hit like that, change a single word and make it your own? The answer to that question, at least in 1940 at the Lily Playhouse, was... Sure. I asked, but what if people buy tickets to your show by mistake, thinking that they're going to see Life with Father? Olive, flatly. Yes. Wouldn't that be unfortunate? I was starting to feel young and stupid and annoying, so I stopped talking. For the rest of the taxi ride, I got to just look out the window. It was plenty entertaining to watch the city go by. There were glories to see in all directions. It was late in the evening in midtown Manhattan on a fine summer night, so nothing can be better than that. It had just rained. The sky was purple and dramatic. I saw glimpses of mirrored skyscrapers, neon signs and shining wet streets. 
People sprinted, bolted, strolled and stumbled down the sidewalks. As we passed through Times Square, mountains of artificial lights spewed out their lava of white-hot news and instant advertising. Arcades and taxi dance halls and movie palaces and cafeterias and theatres flashed by, bewitching my eyes. We turned onto 41st Street, between 8th and 9th Avenues. This was not a beautiful street back then, and it still isn't a beautiful today. At that time, it was mostly a tangle of fire escapes for the more important buildings that faced 40th and 42nd Streets. But there in the middle of that unlovely block was the Lily Playhouse, my Aunt Peg's theatre, all lit up with a billboard that read, Life with Mother. I can still see it in my mind today. The Lily was a great big lump of a thing, crafted in a style that I now know as Art Nouveau, but which I recognised then only as heavy duty. And boy howdy did that lobby go out of its way to prove to you that you'd arrived somewhere important. It was all gravity and darkness. Rich woodwork, carved ceiling panels, blood-red ceramic tiles and serious old Tiffany light fixtures. All over the walls were tobacco-stained paintings of bare-breasted nymphs cavorting with gangs of satyrs. And it looked like one of those nymphs was about to get herself in trouble in the family way if she wasn't careful. Other murals showed muscular men with heroic calves wrestling with sea monsters in a manner that looked more erotic than violent. You got the sense that the muscular men didn't want to win the battle, if you see my point. Still, other murals showed dryads struggling their way out of trees, tits first, while naiads splashed about in the river nearby, throwing water on each other's naked torsos in a spirit that was very much whoopee. Thickly carved vines of grapes and wisteria, and lilies, of course, climbed up every column. The effect was quite bordello. I loved it. I'll take you straight to the show, Olive said, checking her watch, which is nearly over, thank God. She pushed open the big doors that led into the playhouse itself. I'm sorry to report Olive Thompson entered her place of work with the demeanour of one who might rather not touch anything within it, but I myself was dazzled. The interior of the theatre was really something quite stunning, a huge, golden-lit, fading old jewel box of a place. I took it all in. The sagging stage, the bad sight lines, the hefty crimson curtains, the cramped orchestra pit, the over-gilded ceiling, the menacingly glittery chandelier that you could not look at without thinking, now what if that thing should fall down? It was all grandiose. It was all crumbling. The lily reminded me of my grandmother Morris, not only because my grandmother had loved gaudy old playhouses like this, but also because my grandmother had looked like this. Old, overdone and proud, and decked to the nines in out-of-date velvet. We stood against the back wall, although there were plenty of seats to be had. In fact, there were not many more people in the audience than on stage, it appeared. I was not the only one who noticed this fact. Olive took a quick head count, wrote the number in a small notebook which she had pulled out of her pocket, and sighed. As for what was going on up there on the stage, it was dizzying. This, indeed, had to be the end of the show, because there was a lot happening at once. At the back of the stage there was a kick line of about a dozen dancers, girls and boys, grinning madly as they flung their limbs up towards the dusty heavens. At centre stage, a good-looking young man and a spirited young woman were tap-dancing as though to save their lives, while singing at full bellow about how everything was going to be just fine from now on, my baby, because you and me are in love. On the left side of the stage was to be found a phalanx of showgirls, whose costumes and movements kept them just on the correct side of moral permissibility, 
but whose contribution to the story, whatever story that may have been, was unclear. Their task seemed to be to stand with their arms outstretched, slowly turning, so that you could take in the full Amazonian qualities of their figures from every angle, at your leisure. On the other side of the stage, a man dressed as a hobo was juggling bowling pins. Even for a finale, it went on for an awfully long time. The orchestra banged forth, the kick line pounded away, the happy and breathless couple couldn't believe how terrific their lives were about to get, and the showgirls slowly displayed their figures. The juggler sweated and hurled, until suddenly, with a crash of every instrument at once, and a swirl of spotlights, and the wild flinging up of everyone's arms in the air at the same time, it ended. Applause. Not thunderous applause. More like a light drizzle of applause. Olive didn't clap. I clapped politely, though my clapping sounded lonely there at the back of the hall. The applause didn't last long. The performers had to exit the stage in semi-silence, which is never good. The audience filed past us dutifully, like workers heading home for the day, which is exactly what they were. Do you think they liked it? I asked Olive. Who? The audience. The audience? Olive blinked, as though it had never occurred to her to wonder what an audience thought of a show. After a bit of consideration, she said, You must understand, Vivian, that our audiences are neither full of excitement when they arrive at the Lily, nor overwhelmed with elation when they leave. From the way she said this, it sounded as though she approved of the arrangement, or had at least accepted it. Come, she said, your aunt will be backstage. So backstage we went straight into the busy, wanton clamour that always erupts in the wings at the end of a show. Everyone moving, everyone yelling, everyone smoking, everyone undressing. The dancers were lighting cigarettes for each other and the showgirls were removing their headdresses. A few men in overalls were shuffling props around, but not in any way that would cause them to break a sweat. There was a lot of loud, overripe laughter, but that's not because anything was particularly funny. It's just because these were show business people, and that's how they always are. <laughs> And I'll stop there. Oh, I really want to read this bit. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, I honestly have nothing to say about that. Yeah. I just love the Lily Playhouse, yeah. and I want to be there. I love the description of like all the painting, like the murals and stuff. Like, it's so funny, and I can picture it. Yeah, like it's such a vivid picture in my head. That's why I wanted to pick it because it was literally like I could see it so clearly. Yeah, and then the bit where she compares it to her grandmother I just I just think <laughs> yeah. it's so good if there was I think if there was a setting that I could visit from this year I would 100% go there yeah so we've eased in <laughs> the next one is character yes I have an honourable mention of course obviously. you do my honourable mention is Kaz Brecker mm-hmm. from Lee Bardigo's Six of Crows geology I love him I think he's so fascinating his arc is great his backstory is great but I essentially did an episode on Kaz Brecker I looked it up at the end of season one so you can listen to that and find out why I like him Mm. but my answer for today is Victor Vale ah V.E. Schwab's Villains series I have done a full episode on this series it was in season two it is a world where people can become extraordinaries or EOs Basically, they can get superpowers. You get these powers by dying, but being revived. And your power is affected by the cause of death and your last thoughts as you're dying. Mm -hmm. So it's a great concept, first of all. 
but it also has this amazing dynamic between Victor Vale and Eli Ever, who discover how to become EOs together at college and then want each other dead later in life. So it's a dark academia crossed with like X-Men like powers. Yes. So clever. Um, so there are lots of reasons why Victor was my favourite character this year. He's a villain, is pretty much all the characters in this series are, obviously. Mm. But Schwab has written him so cleverly where you do understand him. You understand the bloodlust and the murder and the manipulation. <laughs> um, and like, he's just... I suppose they're all morally grey. No one's ever fully bad or fully good in the series. You're... It's it's murky, mm. um, but I was rooting for him the, the whole time. <laughs> um, so I have already read out one of my favourite Victor Vale moments in that other episode. It's the passage where he's blacking out a self-help book that yes. his parents wrote. So he does what is like essentially blackout poetry on their work as like a hobby or like a compulsion. Um, and I love that detail about him. But the passage I'd like to read today is when they're in college, we're looking back at the past, And it's about Victor wanting to follow in Eli's footsteps to become an EO and his motivations behind that. Cool. So basically at this point in the book, which is quite near the start, Eli has successfully become an EO. He has the ability of regeneration, but Victor has had a failed attempt and this is him wanting to try again. Okay. So this is 10 years ago at Lachlan's University. When Victor got home from his labs the next day, he found Eli sitting at the kitchen table, carving up his skin. He was dressed in the same sweatpants and shirt Victor had found him in the night before when he had finally come home from his walk, several degrees closer to sober and with the beginnings of a plan. Now Victor grabbed a candy bar and hung his bag on the back of a wooden kitchen chair before sinking into it. He peeled away the wrapper and tried to ignore the way his appetite fizzled as he watched Eli work. Shouldn't you be shadowing at the hospital today? asked Victor. It's not even a conscious process, murmured Eli reverently, as he drew the blade up his arm, the wound healing in the knife's wake, a blossom of appearing and disappearing red, like a sick magic trick. I can't stop the tissue from repairing. Poor you, teased Victor coolly. Now if you don't mind, he held up the candy bar. Eli paused mid-cut. Squeamish. Victor shrugged. Just easily distracted, he said. You look awful. Have you slept? Eaten? Eli blinked and set the knife aside. I've been thinking. The body doesn't survive on thoughts. I've been thinking about this ability, regeneration. His eyes glittered as he spoke. Why of all the potential powers I ended up with this one? Maybe it's not random. Maybe there's some correlation between a person's character and their resulting ability. Maybe it's a reflection of their psyche. I'm trying to understand how this, he held up a blood-stained but uninjured hand, is a reflection of me. Why he would give me... He? asked Victor incredulously. He wasn't in the mood for God. Not this morning. According to your thesis, he said, an influx of adrenaline and a desire to survive gave you that talent. Not God. This isn't divinity, Eli. It's science and chance. Maybe to a point. But when I climbed into that water, I put myself in his hands. No, snapped Victor. You put yourself in mine. Eli fell silent, but began to wrap his fingers on the table. After several moments, he said, 
What I need is a gun. Victor had taken another bite of chocolate and nearly choked. And why is that? To truly test the speeds of regeneration, obviously. Obviously. Victor finished his snack as Eli pushed up from the table to pour himself some water. Look, I've been thinking too. About what? asked Eli, leaning back against the counter. About my turn. Eli's brow crinkled. You had it. About my next turn, Victor said. I want to try again tonight. Eli considered Victor, head cocked. I don't think that's a good idea. Why not? Eli hesitated. I can still see the line from your hospital bracelet, he said at last. At least wait till you're feeling better. Actually, I'm feeling fine. Better than. I feel wonderful. I feel like roses and sunshine and glitter. Victor Vale did not feel like glitter. His muscles ached, his veins still felt strangely starved of air, and he couldn't shake the headache that had trailed him since he'd opened his eyes beneath the fluorescent white of the hospital lights. Give yourself time to recover, okay? said Eli. And then we'll talk about trying again. There was nothing overtly wrong with the words, but Victor didn't like the way he said them. The same calm, cautious tone people use when they want to let someone down slowly, smoothing a no into a not right now. Something was wrong, and Eli's attention was already drifting back towards his knives, away from Victor. He clenched his teeth against the curse in his tongue, and then he shrugged carefully. Fine, he said, swinging his bag back onto his shoulder. Maybe you're right, he added with a yawn and a lazy smile. Eli smiled back and Victor turned towards the hall in his room. He swiped an epinephrine pen on the way and closed the door behind him. Victor hated loud music almost as much as he hated crowds of drunk people. The party had both and was made more insufferable by Victor's own sobriety. No booze, not this time. He wanted, needed, everything to be sharp, especially if he was going to do this alone. Eli was still, presumably, at the apartment, carving up his skin while he assumed Victor was in his room, sulking or studying or both. What Victor had actually been doing was climbing out his window. He'd felt 15 again, a kid sneaking out to a party on a school night while his parents sat in the living room and laughed at something mindless on the TV. Or at least Victor imagined this was what it would have been like had he needed to sneak out. Had anyone ever been home to catch him at it? Victor moved through the party, largely unnoticed, but not unwelcome. He earned a few second glances, but those were mostly because he rarely made an appearance at these kinds of events. He was an outsider by choice, a good enough mimic to charm his way into social circles when he wanted, but more often than not he preferred to stand apart and watch, and most of the school seemed content to let him. But here he was, winding his way through bodies and music and sticky floors, the epinephrine pen tucked into the inside pocket of his coat, a small post-it affixed to it that read, Use Me. Now, as he found himself surrounded by lights and noise and bodies, Victor felt as if he'd wandered into another world. Is this what normal seniors did? Drank and danced with bodies interlocking like puzzle pieces to music loud enough to drown out thoughts. Angie had taken him to a few parties freshman year, but those had been different. He couldn't remember anything about the music or the beer, only her. Victor blinked the memory away. Sweat coated his palms as he took a plastic cup and dumped the contents into a withering houseplant. Holding something helped. 
At one point he found himself on the balcony, looking down at the frozen lake that ran behind the frats. The sight made him shiver. He knew for optimum results he should mimic Eli, recreate the successful scenario, but Victor couldn't, wouldn't do that. He had to find his own method. He pushed off the banister and retreated back into the house. As he continued on a circuit through the rooms, his eyes flicked around, appraising. He was amazed at how myriad the options for a suicide were, and yet how limited the options for one with any certitude of survival. But Victor was certain of one thing. He wasn't leaving here without his turn. He wouldn't go back to the apartment and watch Eli joyfully saw at his skin, marvel at the strange new immortality he hadn't even tried that hard to find. Victor wouldn't stand there and coo and take notes for him. Victor Vale was not a fucking sidekick. By his third lap around the house, he'd scored what he considered to be enough cocaine to induce cardiac arrest. He wasn't sure, having never engaged in that kind of activity. He'd had to buy from three separate students, since each only had a few hits on them. On his fourth lap around the house, while working up the nerve to use the cocaine, he heard it. The front door opened. He couldn't hear that over the music, but from his place on the stairs he felt the sudden burst of cold, and then a girl squealed and said, Eli, you made it. Victor swore softly and retreated up the stairs. He heard his own name as he wound through the bodies. He broke through and reached the second floor landing, and then found an unoccupied bedroom with its own bathroom at the back. Halfway through the room, he stopped. A bookcase lined one wall, and there in the centre, his own last name leapt out at him in capital letters. He pulled the massive self-help book from the wall and opened the window. The sixth book in a series of nine on emotional action and reaction hit the thin coat of snow below with a satisfying thud. Victor shut the window and continued into the bathroom. On the sink, he set his things in order. First, his phone. He punched in a text to Eli but didn't hit send and set the device to one side. Second, the adrenaline shot. He'd be up to temperature, so hopefully a single direct injection would suffice. It would be hell on the body, but so would everything else he was about to do. He set the needle beside the phone. Third, the coke. He made a neat pile and began to separate it into lines with a hotel card he found in his back pocket, a relic from the winter trip his parents had dragged him on. Despite an upbringing that would have driven most kids to drugs, Victor had never been much inclined to do them, but he had a good idea of the steps, thanks to a healthy diet of crime dramas. Once the cocaine was in its lines, seven of them, he pulled a dollar from his wallet and rolled it into a narrow straw, as seen on TV. He looked in the mirror. You want to live, he told his reflection. His reflection looked unconvinced. You need to live through this, he said. You need to. And then he took a breath and bent over the first line. The arm came out of nowhere, wrapped around his throat, and slammed him back into the wall opposite the vanity. Victor caught his balance and straightened in time to see Eli run his hands several hundred dollars worth of coke, brushing it all into the sink. What the fuck? Victor hissed, lunging for it. He wasn't fast enough. Eli's coke-dusted palm shoved him back again, pinned him to the wall, leaving a white print on the front of his black shirt. What the fuck? parroted Eli with shocking calm. What the fuck? You weren't supposed to be here. You come to a party, people notice. Ellis texted me when you showed up, and then Max texts and tells me you're buying out the coke. 
Not an idiot. What were you thinking? His free hand grabbed the cell on the sink. He read the text. He made a sound like a laugh, but his fingers tightened around Victor's collar as his other hand pitched the phone into the shower, where it broke into several pieces on impact. What if I hadn't heard my phone? He let go of him. What then? Then I'd be dead, said Victor with fine calm. His eyes drifted to the EpiPen. Eli's attention followed. Before Victor could move, Eli grabbed the pen and drove it into his own leg. A small gasp escaped his gritted teeth as the contents flooded his system, jarring his lungs and heart, but in moments he recovered. I'm only trying to protect you, Eli said, casting the used cartridge aside. My hero, growled Victor under his breath. Now fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Such a good passage. That is such a good passage. (laughs) The line, Victor Vale's not a fucking sidekick. Mm. It's such an iconic line from the series. It's the one that you will see all over, like, Pinterest. Which I think is understandable. And yeah, I know this isn't, like, the most exciting part of the story, but I like that we get to see why Victor wants to have a power too. Because it's not out of any kind of, like, wanting to be a hero, no. save humanity. Like, it's just like, nah, Eli- Eli's done it. <laughs> he got to have one. Yeah. I want to get one. <laughs> so, yeah, I just think the series as a whole is, like, a really interesting look at superpowers. And and I also really like the dialogue between Eli and Victor so much in this series because they're both really pretentious and arrogant, but, like, they understand each other so well which is why they're great enemies. So, yeah, I don't want to go on too much longer, so I'll leave it there. But I just love Victor Vale. I also find it really hard to not just, to, like, call him Victor. Like, I have to call him Victor Vale. (laughs) And Eli ever. Do you know what vibes I get from Victor Vale? I get very extreme Chuck Bass vibes. Mm. Like, I don't feel like that's his character, but from the passages you've read out to me, like... He is asexual, so it's very not Chuck (laughs) Chuck vibes but yeah I feel like in a different interpretation of Gossip Girl Chuck would not have to be a sexual man I feel like he's just he's just a good villain like the whole like not a fucking sidekick thing (laughs) it's very (laughs) so yeah that's Victor Vale love that love him what character did you pick my favorite character of the year by a mile is Cersei from Madeline Miller's Cersei. It's not the character I like the best. I would like to clarify that now, because that would have probably come from, like, the Starless Sea or City of Girls. Mm -hmm. But I think she's the character that I find the most unforgettable. Yeah. So that's why I want to talk about her. So, yeah, I'm going to spoil this plot to talk about this character. To be fair, we spoiled it when I talked about it anyway, yeah. so... Well, that's what I was going to say. You did an episode on this book last year, and then I read it in January. So I'll just do a quick recap for anyone not familiar. Circe appears in Greek mythology as a daughter of Helios, the Sun Titan. She's cast out of the realm of the gods for practising witchcraft. That's a very simplified summary. She's banished to an island where she perfects her magic and solitude, and when Odysseus ends up on her island on his odyssey back to Ithaca from Troy after the war at Troy. She becomes his lover. She bears a child that ultimately accidentally kills Odysseus. And she's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) This is such a random side note, but I have bought two of the Circe dark goddess candles from the Honeymoon Apothecary Mm. since reading it. 
it smells very good and also it smells like how I'd imagine her island to smell so mm. that pleases me. So I think the reason, one of the reasons that I loved Cersei a lot was not necessarily that she was someone I could relate to but she was someone I could understand because unlike a lot of heroines she's really really angry mm. and bitter about her lack of respect among the gods. She's really insecure um, and she does a lot of bad things. Mm. For example, she turns her sister Scylla into a sea monster because she's jealous of her. And even though she also loves very fiercely and she's shown to be vulnerable throughout the book, her rage isn't really made out to be a flaw for her to overcome. She pretty much retains the rage. Yeah. Until she makes peace in her own way. Yeah. Which I enjoy. So... Yeah, I like that we see her go through personal growth and that she's multifaceted, but that she doesn't need to be made like good or passive yeah. to be a heroine. That's one thing I love about Madeline Miller is that she gives like all of like the gods and stuff like she does make them more nuanced, mm-hmm. which they weren't. It's interesting because I was listening to the author and creator illustrator of Lore Olympus mm-hmm. and she's like, it's fun to write about gods because like they're ridiculous. I feel like Madeline Miller is almost the opposite, where it's like she makes the ridiculous not ridiculous yeah, in a she, weird way. She makes us take them seriously because she makes them take themselves seriously, but not in like a self-parody way. Yeah. Like she makes them introspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, I just like that Cersei is described as being a god with a mortal's voice and that her voice sounds horrible to all the other gods. Mm, yeah. I just find that really endearing because I think everyone hates their voice. Yeah. So it's yeah. like a really good way to get everyone on Cersei's side immediately. Yeah. So I have got three short passages, which wasn't the rules, but here we are, <laughs> which contain my favourite Cersei moments. And I don't think that they're the ones that you read out. So first up is this passage from... The first night that Odysseus comes to our island, she holds his crew hostage as she's come to do as a routine because she's taken to turning rapists into pigs. But when she holds his crew hostage, he takes one of her most potent herbs for magic, Molly, and they find themselves a stalemate. Are you always so suspicious? What can I say? He held out his palms. The world is an ugly place. We must live in it. I think you are Odysseus, I said, born from that same trickster's blood. He did not start at the uncanny knowledge. He was a man used to gods. And you are the goddess Circe, daughter of the sun. My name in his mouth. It sparked a feeling in me, sharp and eager. He was like ocean tides indeed, I thought. You could look up and the shore would be gone. Most men do not know me for what I am. Most men, in my experience, are fools, he said. I confess you nearly made me give the game away. Your father, the cowherd? He was smiling, inviting me to laugh, as if we were two mischievous children. Are you a king? A lord? A prince? Then, Prince Odysseus, we are at an impasse. For you have the molly, and I have your men. I cannot harm you, but if you strike at me, they will never be themselves again. I feared as much, he said, and, of course, your father Helios is zealous in his vengeance. I imagine I would not like to see his anger. Helios would never defend me, but I would not tell Odysseus that. You should understand your men would have robbed me blind. I am sorry for that. They are fools and young, and I have been too lenient with them. 
It was not the first time he had made that apology. I let my eyes rest on him, take him in. He reminded me a little of Daedalus, his evenness and wit. But beneath his ease, I could feel a royal that Daedalus never had. I wanted to see it revealed. Perhaps we might find a different way. His hand was still on his hilt, but he spoke as if we were only deciding dinner. What do you propose? Do you know, I said, Hermes once told a prophecy about you. Oh, and what was it? That you were fated to come to my halls. And? That was all. He lifted an eyebrow. I'm afraid that is the dullest prophecy I have ever heard. (laughs) I laughed. I felt poised as a hawk on a crag. My talons still held the rock, but my mind was in the air. I propose a truce, I said. A test of sorts. What sort of test? He leaned forward a little. It was a gesture I would come to know. Even he could not hide everything. Any challenge, he would run to meet it. His skin smelled of labour and the sea. He knew ten years of stories. I felt keen and hungry as a bear in spring. I have heard, I said, that many find their trust in love. It surprised him, and oh, I liked the flash of that, before he covered it over. My lady, only a fool would say no to such an honour, but in truth, I think also only a fool would say yes. I am a mortal. The moment I set down the molly to join you in your bed, you may cast your spell. He paused. Unless, of course, you were to swear an oath, you will not hurt me upon the river of the dead. An oath by the river Styx would hold even Zeus himself. You are careful, I said. It seems we share that. No, I thought. I was not careful. I was reckless, headlong. He was another knife, I could feel it. A different sort, but a knife still. I did not care. I thought, give me the blade. Some things are worth spilling blood for. I will swear that oath, I said. It's so much I love this book. I know. I think what I love is that she's got two different, like, perceptions of herself. Because she is so careful, like she says, like Helios would never defend me, but I would not tell Odysseus that. Mm. And she's calculating every move, and mm. she like compares herself to a hawk. But that bit about the tide, where it's like, oh, you could look down and the shore wouldn't be there. Like she knows that she's so impulsive. Yeah. I don't know. I just I think that she's got like a romance in her that she doesn't really like to admit. Other yeah. than to herself. But yeah, she's like very in the moment too, because we know that she's been really badly hurt by mortal men before, so she has to like have her wits about her. But I like that she has a little spirit of fun and mm. everything. She's always like, oh, this is a fun game. Well, because like she's immortal, so it's like, what, what else are you going to do? Exactly. <laughs> so the next passage is from late on in the book. Athena, the goddess who's been threatening to take away Circe and Odysseus's son, Mm. has offered him the chance to be a hero in Ithaca. Mm. Telegonus, the son, wants to take it, and Circe is guide. <laughs> I felt as though I'd slipped from a cliff. I was in the air, falling, with nothing to hold me. Son, I cried, say nothing. Fast as arrow shot, she turned on me. You dare to obstruct me again? What more do you want from me, witch? I have sworn an oath I will not harm him. I offer him a gift that men would trade their souls for. 
Will you keep him hobbled all his life like a broken horse? You do not want him, I said. He killed Odysseus. Odysseus killed himself, she said. The words hissed through the room like a scythe's blade. He lost his way. It was you who made him lose it. Anger smoked in her eyes. I saw the thought in them, how her spearhead would look tearing the blood from my throat. I would have made him a god, she said, an equal, but in the end he was too weak. It was all the apology you would ever get from a god. I bared my teeth and slashed the spear tip through the air. You will not have my son. I will fight you before I let you take him. Mother, the voice was soft at my side. May I speak? I was breaking to pieces. I knew what I would see when I looked at him, his eager, pleading hope. He wanted to go. He had always wanted to go, from the moment he was born into my arms. I had let Penelope stay on my island so she would not lose her son. I would lose mine instead. I have dreamed of this, he said, of golden fields that stretch out unbroken to the horizon, orchards, gleaming rivers, thriving flocks. I used to think it was Ithaca I saw. He was trying to speak gently, to rein in the excitement that rose in him like a flood. I thought of Icarus, who had died when he was free. Telegonus would die if he were not. Not in flesh and years, but in all that was sweet in him, would wither and fall away. He took my hand. The gesture was like a bard's. But were we not in a sort of song? This was the refrain we had practised so often. There is a risk, I know it, but you have taught me to be careful. I can do this, mother, I want to. I was a grey space filled up with nothing but air. What could I say? One of us must grieve. I would not let it be him. My son, I said, it is yours to decide. Joy broke from him like a wave. I turned away so I would not have to see it. Athena would be glad, I thought. Here was her vengeance at last. Be ready for the ship, she said. It comes this afternoon. I do not send another. The light faded back to simple sun. Penelope and Telemachus eased away. Telegonus embraced me as he had not since he was a child, as maybe he never had. Remember this, I told myself. His wide shoulders, the curve of the bones in his back, the warmth of his breath but my mind felt parched and windswept. Mother, can you not be happy for me? No, I wanted to shout at him. No, I cannot. Why must I be happy? Is it not enough that I let you go? But I did not want for that to be the last he saw of me, his mother shrieking and keening as if he were dead, though he was still filled with so many hopeful years. I am happy for you, I made myself say. I led him to his room. I helped him pack filling trunks with medicines of every sort, for wounds and headaches, for pox and sleeplessness and even childbirth, which he blushed at. You are founding a dynasty, I said. Heirs are usually necessary. <laughs> Breaks my heart how happy he is in that scene. I love Cersei in the scene because this is what I mean by she never loses her like rage and bitterness. Like All she is is rage and bitterness, mm. but she's choosing to show how much she loves him instead. Yeah. It's very Joe March vibes. Mm. So yeah, I think it, it, at this point, a lot of her identity is defined by Telegonus. Like, she would live and die to be his mother. Yeah. And I think this shows how she can be a good mother without being like a really saintly person, because 
you could call her like rage and anguish selfish here but I think it's only selfish because mothers are so often depicted as like the epitome of selflessness yeah like they're supposed to be selfless all the time as if it comes easily and I think that Cersei shows how you can be a flawed person and still choose to be like a good mother or whatever the relationship is yeah like you can do the selfless action yeah like you make the choice to be good at whatever that relationship is regardless of what comes naturally yeah 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 but I like that we get to see like inside her mind all the like dark thoughts that she's having because I feel like that scene could be so different if that wasn't there and my third and final Cersei moment is when she finally finally gets some peace (laughs) from the many trials that she's put through in the book and from her own brain so I love the way this scene rewards the reader as well it's near the end when Cersei and Telemachus who doesn't really need explained but she's like (laughs) the person that she sort of ends up with, Mm. have weathered the sea around her monstrous sister, Scylla, and finally killed her with the tail of the sea god Trigon. (laughs) This is important because Scylla's been killing soldiers for decades. Cersei's been living with that on her conscience because obviously she made her into a monster. It was a long way to land. My arms and back ached as if they had been whipped, and Telemachus must have been worse, yet our sail was miraculously intact and it bore us on. The sun seemed to drop into the sea like a falling plate, and night rose over the water. I sighted land through the star-pricked black, and we dragged the boat onto its beach. We had lost all our freshwater stores, and Telemachus was dull-eyed, nearly speechless. I went to find a river and carried back a brimming bowl I transformed from a rock. He drained it, and afterwards he lay still so long I began to be afraid, but at last he cleared his throat and asked what food there was. I'd gathered a few berries by then and caught a fish which was spitting over the fire. I'm sorry I put you in such danger, I said. If you had not been there, we would have been smashed to pieces. He nodded wearily as he chewed. His face was still drawn and pale. I confess I am glad we will not have to do it again. He leaned back upon the sand and his eyes drooped close. He was safe, for our camp was backed up into the corner of the cliff so I left him to walk the shore. I thought we were on an island, but I could not tell for certain. There was no smoke rising above the trees, and when I listened I heard nothing but night birds and brush and the hiss of waves upon the shore. There were flowers and forests growing thickly inland, but I did not go look. I was seeing before me again that rocky mass that had been Scylla. She was gone, truly gone. For the first time in centuries, I was not lashed to that flood of misery and grief. No more souls would walk the underworld written with my name. I faced the sea. It felt strange to have nothing in my hands, no spear heft to carry. I could feel the air moving across my palms, salt mingling with the green scent of spring. I imagined the grey length of the tail, sinking through the darkness to find its master. Trigon, I said, your tail comes home to you. I kept it too long, but I made good use of it at last. The soft waves washed across the sand. The darkness felt clean against my skin. I walked through the cool air as if it were a pool I bathed in. We had lost everything but the pouch of tools he had worn at his waist and my spell bag, which had been tied to me. We would have to make oars, I thought, and lay in some new food stores. But those thoughts were for tomorrow. I passed a pear tree drifted with white blossoms. A fish splashed in a moonlit river. With every step I felt lighter. 
An emotion was swelling in my throat. It took me a moment to recognise what it was. I had been old and stern for so long, carved with regrets and years like a monolith, but that was the only a shape I had been poured into. I did not have to keep it. Telemachus slept on. His hands were clasped like a child under his chin. They had been bloodied at the oars and I had salved them, their warm weight resting in my lap. His fingers had been more callous than I imagined, but his palms were smooth. So often on Aiea, I had wondered how it would feel to touch him. His eyes opened as if I had spoken the words aloud. They were clear, as they always were. I said, Scylla was not born a monster. I made her. His face was in the fire's shadows. How did it happen? There was a piece of me that shouted its alarm. If you speak, he will turn grey and hate you. But I pushed past it. If he turned grey, then he did. I would not go on any more, weaving my clothes by day and unravelling them at night, making nothing. I told him the whole tale of it, each jealousy and folly and all the lives that had been lost because of me. Her name, he said, Scylla. It means the render. Perhaps it was always her destiny to be a monster and you were the o only the instrument. Do you use the same excuse for the maids you hanged? It was as if I had struck him. I make no excuse for that. I will wear that shame all my life. I cannot undo it, but I will spend days wishing I could. It is how you know you are different from your father, I said. Yes, his voice was sharp. It is the same for me, I said. Do not try to take my regret from me. He was quiet a long time. You are wise, he said. If it is so, I said, it is only because I have been fool enough for a hundred lifetimes. Yet at least what you loved, you fought for. That is not always a blessing. I must tell you, all my past is like today. Monsters and horrors no one wants to hear. He held my gaze. Something about him then reminded me of Trigon in his depths. An unearthly, quiet patience. I want to hear, he said. I had kept away from him for so many reasons. His mother and, and my son, his father and Athena. Because I was a god and he a man. But it struck me then that the root of all those reasons was a sort of fear. And I have never been a coward. That's <laughs> a good one. It is a good one. I just, I feel like that one kind of speaks for itself. But yeah, she's like so self-aware. And I love that moment of like, just deciding that she's not going to be like that anymore mm. like i like how intentional all of her emotions are yeah and that's cersei oh <laughs> i enjoyed that <laughs> that is my longest bit everything else will be shorter what is your favorite passage okay so slight caveat here which is that i finished this book on december 31st 2020 so it's technically not a 2021 read for me but I, Scandal. <laughs> but I have reread it multiple times in 2021 because I'm writing my thesis on it. So I'm saying it counts. And that book is Ninth House by Lee Bardugo. So this is a book about secret societies at Yale that deal in dark magic. It's very dark. It's very ghosty. The two main characters are Alex and Darlington, who are part of Lethe, which is an organisation at Yale that makes sure the societies don't do anything out of line or like endanger anyone 
that kind of thing. Mm. Their titles are like in that role or Dante and Virgil, which makes my brain so happy. And you will get to see hints of why those names are so great for them in this quote. So yeah, in this passage, Alex and Darlington are at the Halloween party of the society called Manuscript. Manuscript to deal in illusions, which you will see in this passage. And yeah, like I said, Alex and Darlington are just there to oversee things, to make sure nothing goes awry or becomes dangerous. It's Alex's first time encountering Manuscript as well. But something does happen, of course. (laughs) And this is Darlington's perspective of this event. Also, this is the most, like, spoilery, but I don't actually think it's a spoiler. Because Ninth House is, it goes between past and present, you know already in the present that they have some kind of relationship, but you don't know. Like, you just know there's something, Mm. but you don't know what it is. And so this passage kind of shows that, but I wouldn't call it much of a spoiler because you've already had hints of this before this moment. Okay. Inside, the music thumped and wailed, the heat of bodies washing over them in a gust of perfume and moist air. The big square room was dimly lit, packed with people circling skull-shaped vats of punch, the back garden strewn with strings of twinkling lights beyond. Darlington was already starting to sweat. Doesn't look so bad, said Alex. Remember what I said, the real party is down below. So nine levels total, nine circles of hell. No, it's based around Chinese mythology. Eight is considered their luckiest number, so eight secret levels. The staircase represents a divine spiral. Alex shucked off her coat. Beneath it, she wore a black sheath dress. Her shoulders were strewn with a cascade of silver stars. What are you supposed to be? he asked. A girl in black with a lot of eye makeup on? She pulled a crown of plastic flowers, sprayed with silver paint from her coat pocket, and settled it on her head. Queen Mab. You didn't strike me as a Shakespeare fan. I'm not. Lauren got a puck costume from the drama closet. Mercy's going as Titania, so she shoved me in this and said I could be Mab. You know Shakespeare called Mab the fairy's midwife? Alex frowned. I thought she was queen of the night. That too. It suits you. Darlington had meant it to be a compliment, but Alex scowled. It's just a dress. What have I been trying to tell you? Darlington said. Nothing is ever just anything. And maybe he wanted her to be the kind of girl who dressed as Queen Mab, who loved words and had stars in her blood. Let's walk the first floor before we tackle what lies beneath. And then I'm just going to skip ahead a few pages. So they've spiralled down the staircase They've seen all these different levels of the building that all have like different settings that are like illusions. Mm. And now they're with Lan Kay, who is the head of Manuscript. Kay shrugged. This is a night of calling when the stores are replenished and the casks are made full. No bargain will be made. Descend, boy, if you wish to know what's next. Descend and see what awaits you, if you dare. I just want to know if Jodie Foster is here, Alex murmured as Lang Kay returned to the banquet table. She was one of Manuscript's most famous alums. For all you know, that was Jodie Foster, said Darlington, but his head felt heavy. His tongue felt too big for his mouth. Everything around him seemed to shimmer. Lang Kay turned to him from her place at the head of the banquet table. Descend. 
Darlington shouldn't have been able to hear the word at this distance, but it seemed to echo through his head. He felt the floor drop away and he was falling. He stood in a vast cavern carved into the earth, the rocks slick with moisture, the air rich with the smell of turned soil. A hum filled his ears and Darlington realised it was coming from the mirror, the vault that still somehow hung on the cave wall. He was in the same room, but he was not. He looked into the mirror's swirling surface and the mists within it parted, the hum rising, vibrating through his bones. He shouldn't look. He knew that. You should never look into the face of the uncanny, but had he ever been able to turn away? No, he'd courted it, begged for it. He had to know. He wanted to know everything. He saw the banquet table reflected in the mirror, the food upon it going to rot, the people around it still shoveling spoiled fruits and meat into their mouths along with the swirling flies. They were old, some barely strong enough to lift a cup of wine or a withering peach to their cracked lips. All but Lankay, who stood illuminated by fire, a golden headdress aflame, her gown glowing ember red, the features of her face changing with each breath. High priestess, hermit, hierophant. For a moment, Darlington thought he glimpsed his grandfather there. He could feel his body quaking, felt dampness in his lips, touched his hand to his face and realised his nose had started to bleed. Darlington! Alex's voice, and in the mirror he saw her. But she looked the same. She was still Queen Mab. No, this time she really was Queen Mab. Night ebbed and flowed around her in a cape of glittering stars. Above the oil-black sheaf of her hair, a constellation glowed. A wheel. A crown. Her eyes were black, her mouth the dark red of overripe cherries. He could feel power churning around her. Through her. What are you? He whispered. But he didn't care. He went to his knees. This was what he'd been waiting for. Ah, said Lankay, approaching. An acolyte at heart. In the mirror he saw himself, a knight with bowed head, offering his service, a sword in his hand, a sword in his back. He felt no pain, only the ache in his heart. Choose me. There were tears in his cheeks even as he felt the shame of it. She was no one, a girl who had lucked into a gift, who had done nothing to earn it. She was his queen. Darlington, she said, but that was not his true name any more than Alex was hers. If only she would choose him, if only she would let him. She touched her fingers to his face, lifted his chin. Her lips brushed his ear. He didn't understand it. He only wanted her to do it again. Stars poured through him, a cold and billowing wave of night. He saw everything. He saw their bodies entwined. She was above him and beneath him all at once. Her body splayed and white as a lotus flower. She bit his ear. Hard. Darlington yelped and flinched back, sense flooding through him. Darlington, she snarled, get your shit together. And then he saw himself. He tightened up her skirt, his hands were braced on her white thighs. He saw the masked faces around them, sensed their eagerness as they leaned forward, eyes glittering. Alex was looking down at him, gripping his shoulders, trying to shove him away. The cavern was gone. They were in the banquet room. He fell backwards, letting her skirt drop, his erection throbbing valiantly in his jeans before humiliation washed over him. What the hell had they done to him? And how? 
The mist, he said, feeling like the worst kind of fool, his mind still spinning, his body buzzing with whatever he had inhaled. He'd walked straight through the blast of that fog machine and hadn't thought twice about it. Len Kay grinned. You can't blame a god for trying. Darlington used the wall to push to his feet, keeping clear of the mirror. He could still feel its hum vibrating through him. He wanted to rage at these people. Interfering with representatives of Lethe was strictly prohibited, a violation of every code of the societies, but he also just wanted to get clear of manuscript before he humiliated himself further. Everywhere he looked he saw masked and painted faces. Come on, said Alex, taking his arm and leading him up the stairs, forcing him to walk ahead of her. He knew they should stay. See the night past the witching hour, make sure nothing got past the forbidden floors or interfered with the culling. He couldn't. He needed to get free. Now. The stairs seemed to go on forever, turning and turning until Darlington had no idea how long they'd been climbing. He wanted to look back to make sure that Alex was still there, but he'd read enough stories to know you never looked back on your way out of hell. Oh, what a good last line. I know. (laughs) I don't know why I like this bit so much. I just do. I think it's because it's like a character realising that they have feelings for someone, but it's done in such a, like, horrible way. Mm. There's, like, the Halloween element, too, which I obviously like, the illusion. I also really like Queen and Night imagery. Again, I don't know why, but I do. And also, I think this is the scene where I really, like, fell for Darlington as a character, because I think at first he comes across as quite, like, straight-laced and quite stern. But the start of this chapter which I would have read, but it would have taken forever. (laughs) He's talking about how much he loves and, like, longs for magic. And then we have this scene where the magic, like, reveals something to him, but also humiliates him. So it's almost like, you know, you get what you wish for kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know, it's just weird. It's, like, dark, but it creates this very, like, intense visual image that's very beautiful. Also, I got a line from this tattooed on me. <laughs> I felt like I should mention Yeah, that. I feel like you should. <laughs> so, yeah, I got uh, Who Loved Words and Had Stars in Her Blood on my arm, like, a month ago. Because I also like words and stars and stuff. So, yeah, I couldn't not do this passage. Yeah. Because it's on me permanently. Forever. Kind of has to be your favourite. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's my favourite passage. And Ninth House is one of my favourite books, like, technically of 2020, but 2021. I mean, you haven't shut up about it all year, yeah. so I feel like we I can mean, allow it. Partly because I have to study it, but like... Yeah, I'm not resenting I, it. Like, I love hearing about it, but yeah. I just feel like for everyone else so that they understand, like, she has not shut up about <laughs> it. Oh, can you finish this equally? Because I really I need to read it. Oh, right. Anyway, what did you go for for a favourite passage? I went for The Ophelia Girls by Jane Healy, which I... Like, this book was a weird one for me because I read it when I was having a really weird week and I think I read it quicker than any other book this year. I, like, inhaled it in about a day and a half. Yeah, I remember that. So I knew that I loved it, but then when I went to look back for other, for, like, specific passages, I was like, I loved all of this. (laughs) Um, But there was one passage that I could remember um, and I couldn't remember a lot of the book, so I thought I would just read that for sort of a recap. This is a novel about life imitating art, 
So one storyline follows a group of girls in the 70s that are all pretending to drown in a river and taking photos of it for the aesthetic. And another storyline takes place in the 90s following 17-year-old Maeve who has been having an affair with a photographer who, you guessed it, likes to take photos of her in the water. So this passage is quite near the end of the book in Maeve's storyline and her and the photographer's relationship has become very toxic and complicated and they're having an argument and this is how it goes. Liar, she says. She shifts on her feet. The tufts of dying wildflowers stroke the backs of her legs. I'm going. You should follow me. Maeve, she backs away from him. What am I supposed to tell your parents about where you are? Lie. Or tell them you've broken my heart and I'm off to drown myself in the river. Maeve, he calls out, but she's already gone. Running down the hill, whipping past tall grass, feeling the thud of each step in her ribcage, juddering up her spine. In her mind's eye, there is a camera at the level of her knees, capturing flashes of light, pale legs, brief snatches of the hem of her dress. There is music, too, a suitable soundtrack to the scene. A girl running, her panting breaths loud as if they've been recorded later, breathed right into a microphone. The only green in the landscape before her is the woods ahead. The rest is yellow, white, dead, bright. But the sky is blue, and running down a hill makes it look larger, a pool she wants to dive into. It's too hot, even in motion, the air dry, her mouth sore. She pushes on. Running, she thinks, only feels triumphant if there's somewhere to go, if you're heading for somewhere good. Otherwise it feels like running away, like fleeing. Picture something nice, the nurses told her, when they needed to take blood, inject medication, hook up IVs. Picture a beach or a sweet shop or a princess tower. Picture the woods, the river. Follow me, she thinks, but she doesn't need to turn her head to know that this time he isn't. She's on her own. Oh. I like it. I like it too. It's so dramatic. Yeah, um, this is another one I need to read as well. Yeah, <laughs> I feel that you would really enjoy the Dark Academia vibes of this book. Yeah. I love this because it is how I see the world, which is quite disconcerting. Mm. But it's like amazing to see it put down on the page so accurately. Like that whole bit about how she feels like she's been, like, she's in a movie mm. and she like imagines how it would look to someone else. Yeah. Like, this is a whole theme through the book that I just love, because instead of experiencing her life, Maeve sees it all through the lens of, like, art and story. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because she's been cast in the role of the muse for this photographer. Yeah. But part of it is that she kind of loves that. Yeah, it's very, like, the vibes of when you were being driven about when you were, like, a kid and you would, like, stare out your car window with, like, music playing and be like, I'm in, like, a music video. <laughs> yes! Exactly! <laughs> So, yeah, I think it's just a really honest passage about, like, the vanity that people have about their own lives. Mm. And I feel like I've been trying to write that sensation for years in, like, roundabout ways. Mm. Because I didn't feel like you could just say it like that, because it would sound stupid, but it doesn't. So, I love that. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) What is your favourite line? 
Mine is in, in that. that. Uh, mine was the who loved words and it has stars, stars in her blood. blood. Yeah, Fair I enough. just thought I'd lump mine together. Um, but did you have a specific favourite line? I had a separate favourite line from The Starless Sea. Nice. Because obviously I had to mention this book because <laughs> it was a whole thing. Um, but I didn't actually pick it for any of my other things. Mm. But my favourite line of the year from The Starless Sea is There is a door in the moon. <sighs> I don't know, like something about that line. It makes me feel like, like, like I'm like there's the floor has gone away, and I'm just like, oh, it's so good. That's one of those ones where you read it and you're like, how did you even come up with that idea, and how can I understand it? Like, I feel like it's like, you know, when people are like, oh, poetry doesn't make sense, or like if you read something in another language, the the metaphors or whatever, you won't understand mm. them. I feel like that is an example of just instinctive understanding because, like, yeah. I've never thought of that concept and then she wrote it and I was like, no, exactly what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> like, that has uncovered a truth in my brain and I don't know how else to explain it. <laughs> Favourite new author? Yeah, so... New um, to you, not new. Yeah, new, new to us, yeah. I find this the hardest to pick because I found so many good authors this year but I've only read... You know, like maybe like one book from them, mm. um, and also this year I've just read quite a lot of books from authors that weren't new to me. Like, mm. like I discovered V. E. Schwab last year, but this year I read like loads of her books, that kind of thing. I do want to shout out Samantha Shannon because I discovered her this year. The Priory of the Orange Tree was one of the first books I read this year because I got it for Christmas, mm. and all four of her Bone Season books I read like throughout the year. And I think ideally, I maybe would have read from one of the Bone Season books, but I actually don't own them because I read my sister's copies. But instead, I thought I would just pick an author that I've read once, but that I'm really excited to read more of. Cool. Because this book is, like, hands down one of my favourites of the year, and that is Naomi Novik. And I read Spinning Silver by her, which I did talk about in our last episode as well. But I just, I just loved it. <laughs> so I do own another one of her books, I Own Uprooted, and I'm really keen to read that and her dark academia series, which is called The Scholomance. So yeah, very brief recap of Spinning Silver is that it's a book inspired by the Rumpelstiltskin fairy tale and some other like Slavic um, Polish folklore. It mostly follows three female characters, Mariam, Wanda and Irina, and is about like magic and winter and turning silver into gold. I read a lot of passages from this book <laughs> in that final episode, but I still found it hard to pick another one for today because I just love all of it. But I did narrow it down finally and I've picked a passage from the perspective of Wanda because for some reason I just find like the rhythm of her passages so pleasing. So a little recap from that last episode. Wanda is an employee of Mariam's family. She mostly helps with like the animals and the cleaning, that kind of thing. But Mariam, the money lender, teaches Wanda maths, which Wanda sees as this kind of magic, which is very lovely. That is such a sweet um, passage. And in this passage, which is quite far into the book, but which I don't think spoils anything, Wanda and Sergei, her brother, have run away. I won't say why. But they've run into the woods in the middle of winter, in the middle of a storm, and they come across a tiny little cottage which they have been staying in just until they can like wait this storm out. And this cottage is empty. 
except it doesn't quite seem like it is. Okay. I could explain that, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to read out the passage and leave it at that. Sounds good. Um, Sergey and I looked into the porridge pot together and we did not say anything. Then we turned and looked at the rest of the house. I remembered suddenly I'd put my yarn away on the shelf with the spindle and the knitting needles, but now it was all in a heap on the table. Or I thought it was my yarn, but it was not. It had been wound into skins and when I picked one up it was different. Smooth and soft and much more fine. There was a silver comb lying next to them, a beautiful silver comb that looked like something Azarina would have, with a picture on it of two deer with antlers drawing a sleigh in snowy woods. I looked on the shelves for my yarn, but it was gone. The fine smooth yarn was the same colour. When I looked very closely, it was the same wool. It had only been spun differently, as if to show me what it wanted. Sergei was looking into the firebox. It was half empty. We looked at each other. It had grown very cold again during the night, so one of us might have climbed down to put more wood on the fire. But I knew I had not done it, and I could see from Sergei's face that he had not done it. Then Sergei said, I will go see if I can get a squirrel or a rabbit, and I will fetch more wood while I'm at it. There was still plenty of the wool that Sergei had washed for me. I had never spun yarn so fine as the yarn here, but now I tried to do it better. I combed the wool for a long time with the silver comb, carefully so as not to break the teeth, and when at last I began to spin, I remembered suddenly my mother telling me to make the yarn tighter. Try to go a little faster than that, Wanda. I had forgotten. I had stopped being careful how I spun after she was dead. There was no one in our house who knew better than I how it was supposed to be. I looked down at my own skirt, which was knitted roughly of my lumpy yarn. Before she died, my mother would make big balls of yarn from our goats and take them to our neighbour three houses away who had a loom and come back with cloth. But the weaver would not take my yarn, so I had always had to knit our clothes instead. It took me a long time, hours, just to spin one ball of good yarn. Sergei came back as I was finished. He had caught a rabbit, brown and grey. I made another pot of porridge for us while he skinned it. I put all the meat and the bones into the pot to make a stew with the porridge and some carrots. I made it as much as our pot could hold, more than the two of us would eat. Sergei saw me doing it and he did not say anything and I did not say anything, but we were both thinking the same thing. We did not want whoever was eating our porridge and spinning the yarn to be hungry. If they did not eat the porridge, who knew what they might want to eat instead? While it was cooking, I thought I would start knitting. I wanted to see how much of the bed I could cover with what I already had, so I did not waste time spinning more yarn than we needed. I knitted a strip twice the width of the bed, measuring it until it was long enough, and then I went on from there. The work did not go quickly. I tried to be careful and keep it even and smooth, but I was not used to knitting so carefully either. It was hard to remember not to make it so loose. And then in one place I made it too tight instead and I did not notice at first until I had already knitted three rows onward and I started having to push hard to get the needles in. Then I tried to keep going and just make it better from there on but I had made that, but I had made that last row so tight that I was going very slow, like trying to walk through thick mud and finally I gave up and unravelled those three big rows and did the wrong part all over again. 
Once I had finished up the first skin, I stopped and looked at how much I had made. It was a piece as long as my hand. It was so nicely spun and wound up that there was more yarn than I thought there would be. I measured the length of the bed with my hands and counted ten. I had five skins left in the ball of yarn I had made today, so if I made only three more balls of yarn that would be enough. I folded up my knitting carefully and I put it on the shelf and I went back to spinning. I spun all the afternoon. It was still getting colder and colder. All around the door and windows there were little clouds of fog where the air from outside came in through the cracks and there was starting to be frost creeping inside. Sergei could not help me, so instead he made wooden hinges to hang the door. He had found some old nails and a little rusted saw in a corner of the shed to make them. On the inside of the house he nailed on some more branches around the edges of the doorway, making the opening smaller than the door to block the wind. He did the same thing around each window. Then he plastered it all with straw and mud. After that the cold air could not come in and we were warm and cosy in the house. The oven and the porridge filled it with a good smell. It felt strange to be in that warm, quiet place with food. It felt strange because I was already used to it. It was so easy to be used to it. We stopped to eat after I finished spinning. I think I can finish in three days more, I told Sergei, while we ate the good meat porridge. We left plenty over in the pot. How long have we been here? Sergei asked me. I had to stop and count it in my head. I started from market day. I had sold the aprons in the market. I did that in the morning and then I went home and Cadgis was there waiting. Even in my head I hurried past the rest of that, but it was still all one day. Then we had run into the woods and we had kept going a long time into the night, until we found the house. We had found the house that day. It didn't feel as though it could all have been the same day, but it had been. It is Monday. I said finally. Today is Monday. We have been here five days. After I said it out loud, we were both quiet over our bowls. It did not feel as though we had been in that house five days. But that was not because it felt as if we had just arrived. It felt as if we had always been there. Then Sergei said, maybe they have sent word onto Visnia about us. I stopped eating and looked up at him. He meant maybe we should not go ever. He meant we should stay here. It would have been hard to send with all the snow, I said slowly. I didn't want to leave either. But also I was still afraid of the place where things came out of nowhere and someone did my spinning over for me and ate our porridge and burned our wood. And I did not see why it was alright for us to stay. It was alright for us to stay when we would freeze to death otherwise. We had to do that. And we had paid back for the food. We had fixed the chair and we would fix the bed. We had made the windows and doors tight, but that did not make it our house that we could stay in forever. Someone had built this house and it was not us. We didn't know who they were. We couldn't ask them if we could stay, even if they would let us. We cannot leave for three days anyway, Sergei said. Maybe the snow will melt by then. Let us see, I said after a moment. Maybe the knitting will not take me so long. But after we cleared the table, I went back to the shelf where I'd left my knitting and it was not there. Instead on the shelf, there was half a loaf of still fresh bread and underneath a beautiful fine napkin, there was a small ham and a round of cheese and a lump of butter with only a little bit cut off of each. There was a big box of tea and even a jar of cherries and syrup 
like Mariam had bought to eat once at the market. There was even a basket big enough to hold all of it. I stood looking at the thing so long that Sergei got worried and came to see also. We didn't know what to do. It wasn't something we could even make believe had happened in some real way. We could not pretend we had not just seen all that food. We could not pretend someone had come into the house and put that food there and went away again. We had not been asleep. Of course we wanted to eat some of that beautiful food. My mouth remembered the taste of those cherries, the thick sweet syrup like the smell of summer. We were afraid though, even more than we had been about the oats and the honey. It was food that did not even pretend to go with the house, and we had just eaten, so we were not even really hungry. We should save it for later, I said after a moment. We don't need it now. Sergei nodded, then he took the axe. I will go break up some logs, he said, and went out into the yard, even though it was dark. We needed more wood. We had not put any wood on the fire all day, but the box was almost empty. I found the knitting lying on the cot. It felt different, and when I unfolded it, the piece was the same size as I had made, but it had been done over from the beginning. It had a pattern in it now, a beautiful design like a raised vine with flowers that I could feel with my fingers. I had never seen anything like it except for sale in the market for money, and not so fine either. I unravelled some of it to try and see how the picture was made, but each line was so different, the stitches changed so much from one to another, and I couldn't see how to remember which one was next. Then I thought, of course, it was magic. I took a stick out of the fireplace with one end charred and I used the magic that Mariam had taught me. I started at the beginning of the vine in the first row and I counted how many of a stitch there was in a row and I wrote down that number. And if it was a forward stitch, I put a mark above it. And if it was a backward stitch, I put a mark below. I had to make some other marks too, when stitches were brought together, or added. I had to make my numbers small, as if I were writing in Mariam's book. There were thirty rows all different before I came back to the first one. But when I was done, I had the whole picture there on the floor turned into numbers. It looked very different. I was not sure I believed it could really be the same thing. But I remembered how those little marks in Mariam's book became silver and gold, and I took the knitting and I began to add on another row. I did not look back at the picture while I worked. I thought I had to trust the numbers. So I did, and I followed them, for all those thirty rows, and then I stopped and I looked at what I had done, and there were all the vines and leaves, just as beautiful, and I had made it. The magic had worked for me. Oh my god! It makes me want to cry! Why does that make me not hate maths again? I've hated math so solidly <laughs> for so many years. <laughs> I just love Wanda so much. She's so sweet. Mm-hmm. Like, she just sees the world so, like, like simply in, like, the best way. And, yeah, I w- I'm not going to explain why, but, like, you do obviously get the other perspective in tandem with these passages from Wanda's perspective. So you have, like, Wanda and Sergey and their experience of the cottage and in the next section of the chapter, we'll have the perspective of some other characters who are mm. also interacting with the cottage. And I just find it so clever how Novik has weaved so many narratives together, which, like, at the beginning of the book, you can't really see how it would all come together in the end, but it does. And yeah, my last point is that I love how the scene is both, like, 
cosy and unsettling. Like nothing malevolent is happening to them, but there is something strange going on. Um, and I just love that tone and it's quite a good portrayal of like the tone of the whole book. Do you know what story it really reminds me of that I used to love when I was little? What? The Elves and the Shoemaker. Oh yeah. Yeah, it does have that kind of vibe to it. Yeah. Like, just things just appear in the way that you need them. Yeah. And you're, like, questioning it to begin with, but then you realise, <laughs> like, oh, maybe it's fine. Yeah. So yeah, that's that. I feel like 2021 was the year I really, like, fell for fairy tale inspired books. Mm. Um, Like, it's something I've always liked, but I can definitely track like, when I look through my Goodreads of this year, I'm like, oh, there's a lot of fairy tales in there. I think uh, my my brain wanted escapism. Can't imagine why. Yeah. So, like, still quite, like, dark stories, but stories that have, like, a magic to them and, like, a rhythm. Like, yeah. I, I found that a lot of the books I read this year have been really, like, rhythmic and lyrical. But, yeah, Novik, I think, was my favourite example of that. So that's why she was my favourite author that I discovered this year. I loved that passage. Yeah, I thought you might. <laughs> I saw a thing, like one of those cheesy Instagram things the other day, but like that reminded me of it, where it was like, I'm paraphrasing, but it was like, the key to peace is seeing the world as it is, not how you expect it to be. Mm, mm-hmm. And I feel like that's just Wanda. Yeah. Like she just looks at stuff and she's like, right, so that's what that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, she seems so at peace. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So we love that for her. Uh, right, so who was your favourite author that you discovered this year? My one, well, so I feel like I have to say, again, the obvious answer for this is Erin Morgenstern, because I very much love The Starless Sea, I love when you read out her short things, mm. and I just finished The Night Circus, mm. which is a whole other thing that we're just not going to talk about right now. <laughs> but I don't know if I can class her as a new author to me, because you introduced her to me last year. Right, yeah, okay. So, like, I I knew I was going to like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I thought, of an author that I knew nothing about and then discovered this year, it has to be Edward Carey, who wrote Little. Mm. Because Little was probably my top book of the year. I just love anyone that can take a really creepy story about waxworks and make it, like, charming. Yeah. (laughs) And quite romantic. So for anyone that doesn't know, this is a novel based loosely on the life of famous waxworker Madame Tussaud who was a real person. It follows her from her childhood as she apprentices with the wax expert Dr. Curtius in Switzerland. Then they move to Paris and they open a wax museum of famous people during the French Revolution, along with a horrible widow, who is their landlord, and her son Edmund. Dr. Curtius, for reasons unknown, becomes smitten with this widow, and Little herself, who is Madame Tussaud, falls in love with Edmund. And this is a passage which I think very much captures the heart of this story, and it's from a brief moment of respite in the Revolutionary War. This is another one I really need to read as well. (laughs) This book, oh, it's a life changer. It's so good. I want to cry every time that I read stuff out from it, because it's like like that passage you just read out. It's so sweet. Okay. A great lightness marked the city. These were the miracle days, when everyone was beautiful and young, when the city of Paris was briefly utopia. Even Jacques Beauvisage and his Emile thrived within it, roaming the streets, finding and feeding stray dogs, Great Danes and poodles, spaniels limping along the thoroughfares, elegant dogs hastily abandoned by aristocratic owners. 
Curtius sat with the widow in her office, making her small wax ornaments of fruit or flowers. She did not display them. She kept them in a drawer, but she did not throw them out. On one of those strange days, in her wax distraction, she left Edmund alone in the courtyard of the great monkey house, and I went quietly to him. In the sunlight I saw his blue veins, but also a chipped tooth, a mole on the back of his neck. I knew these spots of his. If he was in the sun for any time, freckles would appear on his lower eyelids and on the bridge of his nose, above his dear, uneven nostrils. And then I saw it. His ears began to redden. An important fact here is that Edmund has briefly lost his mind. Oh, okay. <laughs> Edmund? Marie? Edmund? Are you there? Marie? Here? Are you back? You are? And then so soon Edmund called the woman. Edmund, where are you? Come at once. His mother was alert, hollered for him once more, and to her he went. But he turned and waved. It was during that brief season that Curtius summoned me across into his workshop, almost blushing, some semblance of health upon him. Do you know about such things, little? he said shyly. Do you have any notion on this topic? Any thoughts? Any advice to give me? What is the subject, sir? You haven't said. I haven't. I thought I had. Well, love, Marie. Do you know anything about it? I do, sir. I do. It is my greatest subject. But do you think, Marie, as a person, you are a person, do you suppose it might be possible that such as I might love? Yes, sir, I do. But do you think that it might happen that such as I might be loved? I do think it possible, sir. You see, since the recent changes in business, there has come likewise a change over her. I have noted it. Charlotte, dear widow Charlotte. Before she needed me only for business, but now I think there is a different need. I do not imagine it. No. Love, he whispered. Love. What is it? To see that on a face. To capture it in wax. It would be something. (laughs) (laughs) I love Dr. (laughs) Craze. So much. But yeah, I just love, like, that. I love that the dialogue is so poetic because all of these characters are so nervous and, like, like, mad. Mm-hmm. Curtius is very nervous and like he's been a hermit for most of his life so all of his dialogue is like that Little is so straightforward because she's just always been a servant Yeah. and Edmund is well he's been having a nervous breakdown up until this point and I just think that that little line where he says like Marie here is so sweet Yeah. so yeah it's just like I don't know it's a very light touch of a book Yeah. and I it makes me want to read all of the things that he's ever written, which is more like quite a lot of things. Is it? Yeah. He's written... I love the title of this one, Observatory Mansions. Oh. Which sounds good. Alva and Ira, the twins who saved a city. The Ironmonger trilogy. Not iron. Ire. Ire. Like rage. Mm. Heap House, Folsham and London. But it all sound very 
See, his name sounds familiar to me, but I don't think I've ever heard of any of those. Yeah, same here. I wonder if he's maybe done screenplays or something that I've read, that maybe. I've watched. Or it's his drawings that's like in mm-hmm. it, isn't it? I wonder if maybe I've seen his art Yeah, somewhere. maybe he's an illustrator or something. I don't know. But yeah, I'm very intrigued by that book as well. Yeah. It's so good. I really must just, everyone just read it. And it's so Christmassy, so you should read it. Like, it's not overtly Christmassy, but the tone of it is very, like, wholesome. Yeah. So you should read it at Christmas. Hmm. Maybe I'll take that home with me. You should. What is your album of the year? Yes, we're done with books now. Oh yeah, we're done with books. That's it. Books done. Happy 2021. I did you write out your like Spotify or well Oh I didn't write it but I have it. Yeah, so I thought we'd just quickly list what our top artists and songs were. Yeah. I just always find it interesting. I know some people must be so sick of it that day that like Spotify wrapped. I'm so not though. Like I'm so Yeah, I love it. I like read every single person. (laughs) I think it says so much about people. I'm like Match me up with people based on this, please. Because yeah. this is the most important. I'll start while you're yeah. searching. So my top five artists were... One was The Neighbourhood. Two was Luke Hemmings. Three was Five Seconds of Summer. Four was the band Camino. And five was Cigarettes After Six. And I feel like none of that is a surprise <laughs> to anyone. In an equally unsurprising move, <laughs> my top five artists were, in order... Taylor Swift, Maisie Peters, Phoebe Bridgers, Dodie, and Greta Ray. Well, <laughs> and then I've written my top songs as well. My fifth one is so weird because I don't remember listening to it that much, but clearly I did. So my number one is Devil's Advocate by The Neighbourhood. Nice. Which is good. Uh, number two is She Tastes Like Summer by Spilt Milk Society which I love that song. Like, I really love that song. It has got, like, a really good, like, when you want to belt it. Yeah. It's also, that's, like, if if I could capture the novel that I'm writing in a song, it's mm. that song. There you go. So feel free to listen to that and Clues. think about that. Apocalypse by Cigarettes After Sex, because oh, it is my so favourite Cigarettes After Sex song. Four is Sing of the Moon by The Collection, which is a really lovely song. Five is So Am I by Super Whatever, who are not a band that I know that well, but clearly I just took a liking to this song. I think in the summer, I think I just must have played it loads because it's like a very like upbeat, mm. bit depressing song because that's what I like. Yeah. <laughs> what were your top songs? So I'm going to talk about this more, but my okay. top songs are all from one album mm. and they're all from not Maisie Peters' debut album, as you might think, but the soundtrack that she wrote for the TV show Trying. And they are in order. Glowing Review, The Party, Lunar Years, Mill House, and Happy Hunting Ground, featuring Griff. Who I also love, by the way. Griff is great. (laughs) Nice. So I really, clearly, really like that album. Um, Because then we have a short interlude just for, for funsies. We then have Long Story Short by Taylor Swift at number six. And then the next three are Maisie Peters. <laughs> I'm like, wow, you really... Yeah. So that's that's my top songs. Cool. Shall I say my favourite album then? Go for it. So my favourite album was one of my top artists. It's When Facing the Things We Turn Away From, the debut solo album from Luke Hemmings. Of course. Um, 
I did include this in like our return to season three mm. episode. I'll just briefly recap. So like as I said then, it's a very like self-reflective album. It's about relationships and his career and his self-image. A lot of it is about him being in five seconds of summer since he was about like 14, 15 and that complicated relationship about like wanting to be famous but also in retrospect realising how it's like messed him up Mm. because he's like 25 now and it's like (laughs) what's happened it's a very cool album the lyrics are very beautiful the music is very dreamlike and cinematic and again I think I said this last time but he's described the album as being full of sad emotional bops yes it definitely is it is a banger of an album it's so good it's so good I have it on vinyl now and I just play it all the time I played it today so yeah I still don't know if I have like a favorite song on it because I find it quite hard to separate them I think we talked about this when we did our episode on like albums but like I think it's quite rare to sort of listen to a full album like every time I listen to it yeah like but this one I always listen to it start to finish like I just can't stop myself I have to and I think when it first came out I preferred the first half of the album which is like more upbeat but right now I'm like really gravitating towards the last half because I think it just feels more like wintry I think that always happens with albums that you love you always start off loving the star yeah and then you end up like in the last half I do agree I know this is such a long episode, but I thought I'd just pick out a song and talk about it. Go for it. That's what I've done too. <laughs> Bash on. Um, I just wanted something that would end up like on the infatuated mix. <laughs> so I picked his song Diamonds. Luke Hemmings did a live stream for this album release, and he said in that that some of the lyrics for Diamonds were inspired by a kid's book that his fiancée Sierra bought him called How Far Is Far? By Alvin Trestle and it was like the first book she ever bought him and it's like this little kid's book and he described the cover as like this kid in front of a insurmountable space so he connected with the idea of that being like the main theme of the album is that you're like facing things that have been like left aside or left in the background you're okay. like trying to tackle like the thing that's in front of you like you're facing it obviously the title of the album yeah and a lot of the lyrics in the song are just him saying how far is far are we too deep in over and over again and i also just wanted to read out the first three lines because every time i hear them i'm just like oh those are good lines and it's cut like diamonds and sink like stones starve myself till i'm skin and bones i'm so much older than i ever thought i would be which is yeah a line but yeah i would just thoroughly recommend the whole album it's very dreamy and cinematic it's made its way onto like all of my writing playlists and a lot of what i love about it is the instrumentals like the music which Mm. is not easy to describe on a podcast so i think you should just listen to it and i also just wanted to know i think it's really cool when a band is like comfortable enough to just have an artist release something separately without it being a problem yes <laughs> or like a drama like because the other one's done it hasn't yeah it? so ashton arwen the drummer released his own music earlier in the year as well and they were all supportive of that they were all supportive of look i just we just love people being like creatively fulfilled <laughs> um, and that is that on that 
Love so, it. So, I mean, you've kind of already said it, but what is your favourite album? <laughs> so, my favourite album is The Trying Soundtrack by Maisie yeah. Peters. I want to disclaim this by saying I have not watched this show, right? I've heard it's quite good, but I've never watched it either. I, I'm sure it is, but it's on Apple TV and I just don't have that right yeah. now. So, yeah, I talked about one song on this, which was Funeral, because... Yeah, which I really love. Yeah, because it's about <laughs> dead dead people in love. Um, but, yeah, this was very much my top album of the year. I could not stop listening to it all summer. It's just really my kind of thing. Again, sonically, it's, like, quite folky, acoustic-y, but it has, like, a kind of underlying pop production mm-hmm. on it. it. Like, the word that always comes to my head when I'm trying to describe it is thrumming. Like, mm. it's got a real, like forward pulse in it mm-hmm. like a story it feels like a page turner um, and the lyrics are also beautiful because Maisie's so good at lyrics and they're so clever but what I like about this album in contrast to her like the ones that she's writing that are meant to be about her obviously this is about the characters in the show mm-hmm. so it's shown like a different side to her writing which is a lot more her own writing's very sassy mm-hmm. and this is a lot more earnest yeah which I love yeah, there's, because it's a soundtrack album as well, there is a narrative to all the songs and the story spans quite a long time. So you have lots of varied emotions all the way through. It's kind of similar vibes to Red, which is probably why I like it. <laughs> and my favourite song from the album and top song of the year is Glowing Review because it gives me so much faith and love and romance and all the good shit. Plus, I just really like the title, Glowing Review. And... A fun bit of Maisie Peters trivia is that she just decided one day that she was going to have a song called Glowing Review and then made it fit the soundtrack, which I think is quite cool. I like when people share things like that because I think that I think songwriting is this like alchemy that I, like no one can understand. And then she's like, no, nah, I just decided I was going to have this title and then I just wrote a song with that. With that. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I want to read out the first verse because it does the best storytelling with such few words. So it goes... I think we got this in a wedding dress and a Casio watch. This year's a plot twist because I'm not the sort to be certain a lot. Ran for the trenches and there you were humming strawberry fields. No more defences, no more defences. I just really like the first lines of we got this in a wedding dress and a Casio watch. I feel like that immediately, like, I just know who those characters are. And then we have the chorus, which is so cute, which is sat in a pub on the heath. First kiss, first Friday in June. You asked what I'll tell my friends, said it's a glowing review. Baby, nothing much has changed. I guess your buzz cut, it grew. But I'm still the girl with the blush, giving a glowing review. We'll make a home on the cracks, we'll tell nothing but the truth. And for the rest of my life, you'll get a glowing review. Aww, that is cute. It is cute. It's it's very Wedding Vows song. And then there's the bridge, because Maisie builds better bridges than New York, which is just a load of images piled on top of each other, which I really like. So this is like, you can imagine everyone at a concert like screaming this, and it's all like, did, did, which is so good. So it goes, blood moon, skylarks, my baby's out the ballpark, nice teeth, wide heart, I'll never need a hall pass, eyes won't wander, it's my honour, all my future rested on you stairwell hideouts smiling with your eyebrows life without you i never want to find out you're scared me too i won't leave you i won't leave you i really like the line smiling with your eyebrows yeah i like that as well (laughs) 
So yeah, I don't have much to say about this other than it's a really sweet song, but there are so many dramatic sad songs on the album. And I feel like if people enjoy this, the mirror song to this is The Party, which is about like, oh, we know this is a bad relationship, but we're going to stick with it anyway. Okay. So if that's more your vibe, listen to The Party. (laughs) And so we have come to our last thingy. Yes. Favourite film or TV show of the year? Yes, I picked a film. I am shocked. I have honourable mentions. Of course you do. Um, I really liked The French Dispatch, which was our, well, not yours, but it was my first cinema trip back after, like, all of the lockdowns. My only one, actually. <laughs> and yeah, I, I loved Wes Anderson anyway. It was really funny, it was witty. I really liked the structure of it. It's like a magazine. I also really, really, really liked The Green Knight which is an adaptation of an Arthurian epic poem about Gawain, is visually stunning. Like, I can't explain how beautiful this film is. Like, you have to watch it. Like, you have to look at it. (laughs) And I really liked the story, which is, like, it's literally all about a journey and, like, a character arc, Mm. which I love. Dev Patel is an actor that I just love watching. He's very, like, expressive. I'm like, I don't know. I just really like him. But the film from this year that I fell in love with is Tick, Tick, Boom. Ah, yes. Yeah, which I only watched, like, a week ago. Two, maybe? Two weeks ago, maybe. So this... I'm about to go on a bit of a long... I'm so here for it, because I fucking love this. (laughs) So this is a musical based on the life of Jonathan Larson, taking music and story from his rock monologue of the same name. Jonathan Larson wrote Rent which is one of my absolute favourite musicals. But sadly, he passed away the night before the musical previewed on Broadway, very suddenly from an aneurysm. So Tick, Tick, Boom, both his rock monologue and the film, is about his eight-year-long attempt to create a musical and how this endeavour affects his relationships and his work and his life. The music's amazing, but it's also quite funny and it's quite heartwarming and heartbreaking. It's set in New York in 1990, so it has the backdrop of the AIDS crisis as well, which is also something that Rent focuses on. But Tick Tick Boom also has this overarching, like, poignant feeling to it that I find quite hard to describe. But I think there's just something incredible about, like, a real story of a man who feels like he's running out of time because he's about to turn 30 and he hasn't like made it yet and there's this score of like a ticking clock playing through a lot of the film and like the sad thing is that he does make it but he doesn't ever get to know that because he dies and doesn't get to see that Rent runs for 12 years on Broadway but this film isn't even about that no so I just think it's very clever how they've made a film that applies to both the story that Jonathan Larson is telling in his monologue, like Mm. the adaptation, but also the actual overarching story of his life and death and career, if that makes any sense. It makes total sense. I think that it is incredible that this is a man who had this, like, compulsive feeling that he was running out of time to the point where he called his own monologue Tick, Tick, Boom. Mm -hmm. And then, like, not to be crass, but, like, that's what an aneurysm is. Yeah. Like, it's a tick-tick boom. Yeah, I think it was only, I want to say about four years after tick-tick boom that he died. 
which is just absolutely crazy to me. Yeah. And I also just want to add before you continue yes. that I don't really like Rent that much. Like, mm-hmm. I don't mind it, but it wouldn't be something I would watch if I wasn't watching it with you. Yeah. But I really, really liked Tick, Tick, Boom. Okay. For yeah. the, like, metatextual element. Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, to continue. Yeah, carry um, on. It's very beautiful. It's very emotional. I loved the music. You can really hear Rent in it. I didn't know Tick, Tick, Boom. Like, this, I knew it existed, but I didn't know the songs before this film. Mm. But you can see in it that he obviously had a very strong sense of like musical and lyrical style mm-hmm. Andrew Garfield is just wonderful as Jonathan Larson he couldn't sing or play piano before this role but he did his studying and you honestly can't tell Lin-Manuel Miranda directs it it's his first time directing and I really liked his directorial style as well Stephen Sondheim is a recurring character and influence in Jonathan's life and his voice is actually in this film which I think is quite touching to know because obviously he passed away quite recently as well. I think there's like a, like obviously he's an influence on Jonathan Larson, but like you can very much hear the Sondheim vibes as well. Yeah, definitely. And so, more in Tick, Tick, Boom than in Rent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Although he does get a shout out in Rent. It's one of the lyrics in La Vie Bohème is they shout mm. out Sondheim. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, I know I'm just going on, but I'm going to shout out a favourite scene. And it's not a musical scene, actually. It's a phone call between Jonathan and his agent so he's asking what he's meant to do after he's finished this musical like this thing he's been working on that he's dedicated his life to for eight years and she says to him you start writing the next one and after you finish that one you start on the next and on and on and that's what it is to be a writer honey and she's saying this but you're seeing Jonathan's reaction the sort of like devastation that I think is very relatable <laughs> to writers or creatives, that it's not always possible to have this one great success on the first thing that you do. Because mm. I think you do often fall into the trap of believing that everything you do is going to be a success until it doesn't. And that really being a writer is about like trying and trying again. And I love that scene because it's such like a gut punch as you're seeing this man like take all that in. Mm-hmm. So it's like a powerful scene. But it's also quite lovely in a strange way because you know that he does try again and he does get to make the musical. I think it's the moment as well where he sort of gets real. Yeah. Because yeah, before that he's very in. much like wrapped up in his own mythology. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I just really recommend watching it. I normally say this about Rent too, but the songs to me don't sound overly musically. They're rock songs. There's not a huge amount of talking as singing <laughs> it's more singing mm. um and it's a very poignant film about this man's life and his career and it's like a celebration of him it's not about his death and i just really loved it it's very fair it was a, it was a really interesting like it was a really enjoyable film but it was a really interesting film for someone that didn't know all of that about jonathan larson yeah i mean i didn't know a huge amount about him like i knew he'd died before rent got made because they actually show this clip in Tick, Tick, Boom, but there's, like, the bit where you see Anthony Rapp, like, say, like, oh, this mm. show is dedicated to John Larson. So I knew that, and I knew that Rent was based on some aspects of his life, but I couldn't have told you what mm. aspects it was. But you, I, you find out in Tick, Tick, Boom. The scene where he's in the park playing the piano, I'm not going to say anything about it because yeah. I don't want to spoil anything, but, like, that scene shredded me to pieces. <sighs> 
Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot. Anyway. What did you go for? Did you go film or TV? I went TV mm. because I feel like I haven't watched that many films this year and probably yeah. the standout ones were like The French Dispatch and I feel like that was it. I'm the same. I feel like the three I've mentioned are like the three I've watched and yeah. that's it. <laughs> I have definitely watched more films. I just couldn't tell you what. I feel yeah. like I've done a lot of rewatching as well. Yeah, films. I have. But the new TV show that I cannot stop thinking about since I watched it is Made. Oh yeah. Um. Now, obviously, I did mention Made this season, but like, I just need to rant about it again. <laughs> Everything about it is so well done. The visual tone of this TV show is beautiful it is beautiful to look at but not in a like rich vibrant way that i normally like things like it's not la la land beautiful it's like sad beautiful mm-hmm. like what it's all watercolory mm. and the soundtrack is amazing there's so much hip-hop which you don't expect from it and it makes it so like energetic where it could fall flat mm-hmm. it wouldn't because it's got good writing but it could yeah and the writing so, for anyone that doesn't know, Maid is based on writer Stephanie Land's memoir, which is also called Maid. The main character in Maid is a maid who is writing a memoir called Maid. So, she wrote this about escaping her abusive partner with her daughter and navigating all the harmful institutional systems that are meant to help people in trouble, which is what the series is about. But you can feel how real the story is, and I love that about it, because it never feels preachy or like it's got a message but it just feels like someone who's been there because there's so much like minutia of bullshit systems that mm-hmm. normally tv shows would skip over but that's the whole point of this tv show yeah i can't get over andy mcdowell and margaret qualley who's the protagonist's performances as mother and daughter because they're mother and daughter in real life it brings so much more emotion to the scenes because you can see like the actor's relationship behind it yeah but like not in a bad way there's a scene where Andy McDowell, who's the mum, tells Alex, the daughter, that she's proud of her. And they have this really fraught relationship anyway. So it's quite an emotional scene. But then I was watching a behind-the-scenes thing and Margaret Qualley said that shooting that scene, she just felt like her mum was telling her she was proud of her for getting to the end of the performance. Mm. And, like, I, I don't know, that made me emotional. <laughs> I was yeah. like, that's really sweet. Aww. And one thing that I do want to shout out that's not necessarily a spoiler, but just now that more people might have watched it, is the use of motifs in the show. So Alex's like toddler daughter, Maddie, is a huge part of the show. Everything Alex does is to look after Maddie. And her whole identity is wrapped up in being Maddie's mom. And one thing the show does so well is show Maddie's happiness through the use of ponies. Okay. So when Alex first goes to domestic violence shelter... Maddie is given a big giant bag of My Little Ponies that like someone's left behind mm. and she's just buzzing <laughs> and Alex like puts all the ponies everywhere in the room yeah. so that they're like, you know, it's really sweet and it looks really creepy as well, which <laughs> yeah. is funny as anything. And later there's like a friend that Alex makes and you don't know if it's going to be like a good character or a bad character, but then they signal that he's good because he takes Maddie to meet a real pony. And she gets to go on a real pony and she's just so happy. And I think, like, that's just that kind of motif thing happens a lot in the show. It's really deliberate with all of its images, which I appreciate 
when it's a visual medium. So yeah, I don't normally re-watch a plot-driven series because you are like watching it to find out what happens next, but I feel like there's a lot more to see in it, so I'm gonna watch it again and I really want to know anyone else that's watched it because I don't know anyone else that's watched it. (laughs) So if you've watched it, please talk to me. It does sound interesting. I've seen lots of people talk about it. I just don't think it looked on the outside like a show I would like, but from everything you said about it, I'm like, oh. I think it is a lot, don't want to say funnier because it's not like a comedy, but it's got a lot more like snap to it than like it looks a bit dreary on the trailer. Yeah. When I first, there was a part about halfway through where I felt like I was reading Tess of the Durbervilles. Yeah. Like I was like, oh god, everything keeps happening to this woman, I can't hack it. But the good bits balance that out. Okay. Shall we open presents? Yes, we should open presents, it's so late now. <laughs> okay. So you have three things. I did not go overboard this year. No, neither did I. Because I felt like I went overboard last year, so I just got you three nice things. Well, <laughs> I got you lots of little things, but they are all pretty little. Um, so I will give you the things over. Shall we go? You go first, because you have more things. Okay. So a lot of tape. Such a little thing. <laughs> I'm not good at wrapping. <laughs> oh, whatever bonus. Oh, is it exciting? Oh, they're so cute! It's little star and moon earrings. And they have little pearls and little diamonds on them. It just felt like they were very you. Yes, they are very me. Thank you. I feel like I now just always get you earrings with stars. (laughs) I'm very happy with that. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I should open this tiny baby present. Because this is all of our bonus. That is quite funny. <laughs> what we got going on here then? Let's have a look. I almost bought you these! <laughs> I worried they were to me, but no. I thought, I don't know, I could see you in them. I absolutely, they're like star hoops. Yeah. Like cage stars for your ears. Yes. Very into that. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. I genuinely, I was like, I almost bought you them, and I was like, no, they look too like chunky. And yeah, big they're for Emily, big for me. But yeah. they're very me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, how exciting. <gasps> it's some socks with stars on <laughs> They're so cute. I know. <gasps> I love those. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. I had a thought, though, that you won't be able to see the stars when you're wearing them, but you'll know. That they're there. Yeah. Or if you wear them with if tights I wear or them something. With like my boots and tights. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You will see them. Thank you. You're welcome. She's cracked the code. Get me some of the stars on it. <laughs> I'm like a cat. I'm like more concerned with this shiny wrapping than I am with this <laughs> This feels like a bit. Woven in Moonlight. Yeah. Whatever. Yay! I just, it was the only one that you'd mentioned that you wanted to read, so. <laughs> also, the actual book is yellow and it makes me happy. That's so cool. That's so cool, thank you. You're welcome. I'm very excited about this. I almost had Woven in Moonlight in my, like, top thingies. Mm. And then I was like, 
thinking about it and then I was like I wonder what happens after that I should really read the sequel so this is a very good choice yeah I will I will read that as well <laughs> yeah I figured you would I'll try and read it over Christmas so you can have it after that's fine <laughs> um I would like you to open this one next okay. but be careful because it's quite delicate be careful <laughs> <gasps> I follow this person on Instagram that rapping it's amazing. It's so cute. Oh, it's not going to peel off nicely though. That's adorable already. <laughs> That's so cute. Let's see. It's a little like thank you card. That is so cute. Oh, it's an artist that I follow on Instagram already, and she does these cute little like just little portraits of ghosts. And Rebecca's got me one of a a ghost sitting on a moon. <laughs> and it's so adorable. But it's come with a little thank you card that is a ghost in a blanket with a cup of tea <laughs> which is adorable that is really cute <laughs> thank you you're welcome <laughs> and then i think now you should also open this one okay <laughs> i'm hanging on to that paper yeah i think that you should that's why i like told you to be careful because i didn't want you to know that you had that but i didn't want you to rip that wrapping i appreciate that oh this is also from here Look at that sticker! I know! <laughs> oh my god! If I'd known there was going to be so much paraphernalia, honestly. <laughs> this is a mug. <laughs> That's cute. Oh. It says always cosy club and it's got the little ghost. With the cup in, of tea? In the little blanket. That's so cute. Yeah, this was before I knew Stephanie had got you a mug. <laughs> I don't care. I'm so happy with having lots of mugs. I like when a mug is black on the inside. Yeah, that's cool. That is very cool. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, I'll open the corner. Oh, it sparkles, whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm slightly worried it's too much sparkles, but I think you will. Like Come on. It, I think. <laughs> I don't have a Christmas jumper. Yeah, well, I thought it was like Christmassy, but you could definitely yeah, just get away just with that. that yeah. Whenever. Thank you so much. It's a jumper and it says Razzle Dazzle on it and, and it looks like it belongs at the Lily. Yeah, it's like Hollywoody yeah. or like New Yorky font. font. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. I'm going to wear that on Christmas Day. Nice. That will be comfy for sitting in my house. Yeah. But I'll still feel fancy. <laughs> Oh, this is your last thing. Thank you. There you go. This is the first year I've now got you a book. Mm. But you have so many. I have a lot. Yes. <laughs> That's understandable. It's getting out of hand. <laughs> oh. <gasps> That's so cool! It's an embosser for my, for my books. So I can like put a little thing in my books and it says Emily Fletcher we are all stardust and stories. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, that makes me happy. Oh, I can't wait for the day I can just sit and go through all my books. <laughs> I thought when you were moving yeah. your books or unpacking them, yeah. you could emboss them. <gasps> That's exciting. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for my things. Oh, how exciting. Merry Christmas, us. I know, that is a... Uh... I guess that's us then. That's us. We already said goodbye last time, but... Yeah, we're back March 4th. 
Yes. We're season four. Four. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, four. Season four. So I hope you've enjoyed this wee Christmas special, little end of the year wrap up. Yeah, it's been um, fun. It's been a good season. And yeah, just email us if you have any comments or questions. It's infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We have Infatuated Mix, all the music we mention, and social media, which is linked in the show notes. Merry, Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Bye! (laughs)